Our scripture passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, as we read verses 20 to 24. Hear now the word of God. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, in this text today, in part we learn of your son's love of the city. We pray that you would give us a great love For our own city, O God. But we also pray that our interests in the city don't overshadow the reality that men and women, boys and girls, are called to repent of their sins and come to Jesus. Cities don't do that. People do that. And so even now, would you be at work in this city in which we live by changing hearts? Would you be with other churches in our area who even this very morning are proclaiming your gospel? We pray that they would be faithful. We pray that you would bring fruit wherever your word is being shared with people. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As a kid, I really only remember participating in in two churches. These are the two churches I primarily grew up in. Uh, One was in uh, Maxville, Kansas. It was a free Methodist church in Maxville, Kansas. And you probably have never heard of Maxville, Kansas, but it was the very first town I lived in when I was a child. And then later, uh, the Nazarene church in Sylvia, Kansas, where Aaron and I were later married. And My memory of the preaching that I was exposed to was preaching that was passionate, but it was not angry. It was passionate preaching. It wasn't angry. And in the sermons, my recollection, even from my young age, even before I was a believer, uh, I remember the pastors pleading with people to commit their lives to Jesus and be serious about the things of God. Um, It was earnest preaching. But it wasn't angry. It wasn't, it wasn't rage-filled. Um, they talked about the judgment of God. I, I remember uh, Pastor Ken Burnham preaching with tears about the judgment of God. I, I remember believing that he believed this. I remember believing very, very clearly that this was a man who was convinced of, of what he was saying. And when I finally became a Christian a few years later, I listened to a lot of preaching. And and uh, and just like before, the preaching that I was exposed to was not was not angry preaching. It wasn't scary preaching. It wasn't sort of your stereotypical hellfire and, and brimstone preaching. But it was preaching that took the judgment of God seriously. And um, but here's the deal. At the same time, especially as a young man, I loved watching television and movies. And in fact, if you know me today, you'll know I can talk about movies all day long. But here was what I saw there. (laughs) Angry preachers, foaming at the mouth, weirdly gleeful when they talked about the judgment. Gleeful to think of people being swallowed up in the fires. Excited to see unbelievers getting what's coming to them. So you have these wild caricatures that really didn't look anything like the reality that I was seeing in the churches that I was part of. Now, why am I talking about that? Why am I talking about movies and popular culture and the way that they portray Christians and ministers? 
Um, there are other mistakes to the way culture portrays ministers that we don't have time for. But here's what I want to say. Where do people, people at large, people in society, people in this city, people in Beaverton, Hillsborough, Portland, where do they learn about Christianity and Christian teaching? If they're not here in our churches, if they're not having personal relationships with us, if they're not reading books that are produced by Christians, where are they learning about what we are like? They're finding out from the internet. They're finding out from movies. And what are they hearing? They are hearing, perhaps they're hearing sound bites from the worst representatives of Christianity. And those caricatures are what many people soak up. And, they, and, and it's what many out there think of when they think of Christianity. And so here's what it can do. It can make church attendance to be a very intimidating prospect. And so here's the thing. We may be very tempted to overcorrect against the cultural misunderstanding. We must be very careful not to say, well, look, the world thinks that we have some sick obsession with the judgment, so we shouldn't talk about it. Right? That's an overcorrection. Um, some actually do say, and some may say, well, we don't need to talk about judgment. We can actually have a Christianity without a judgment. We can have a Christianity without the, 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 the son being punished on the, on the cross. Perhaps there's some other way for us to think about this that, that, that emphasizes God's love and downplays or removes this idea of the judgment of God. It's so intimidating to people to think about Christians teaching and preaching about the judgment of God. Well, I want you to see two things this morning, and these aren't our points for the sermon, but these are two things that I hope come through as we look at this text. And I want you to see this. I want you to see the centrality of judgment to Jesus and his message. Um, in our reading today, if you, if you have your Bibles, just look at our reading in verses 20 to 24. And look at the very next verses. It goes from this discussion of the judgment of God to probably the most beautiful, comforting verses that are in the entire Bible. Some of the most beautiful words, come to me, come to me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And as I was working on this sermon, here's what I was thinking of doing, I thought, I'll make verses 20 to 24 the first point, and then we can move on to the good stuff. <laughs> that's, my, that's my temptation. I don't want to do a sermon about judgment. I, I want to do a sermon about grace, and I want to go to that first. And the very fact that I had that impulse to do that made me think, maybe we need to think well about these first four verses instead of move, or first five verses, instead of moving on so quickly. And so next week, we get to spend that time in, in perhaps the thing that we like the most, which is the grace and the comfort and the beauty of the invitation of Jesus. But we need to think well about the judgment of God. Because if we don't think well in a healthy way about the judgment of God and what it means, then we're not going to appreciate the beauty of the invitation next week. And so I want us to slow down and actually marinate a bit in this subject that, that we may be very impulsively geared towards moving away from. And so I want you to see the centrality of judgment to the message of Jesus. That's the, the first thing I hope shines through as we look at this. You know, as, as loving as Jesus was, he believed in the judgment. And in, and in fact, because he loved people, he talked more about the judgment. Um, the judgment is on Jesus' lips. Judgment is something Jesus talked a lot about. And here's the reality. It was love that motivated Jesus to talk about judgment. It was not hatred for the people around him that motivated him to talk about judgment. You know, your child that reaches up to the stove, he's, he's able to walk, he's able to reach, maybe he's even tall enough to get his hand up there, and the kid that wants to grab that pot of boiling water if you just stand there and say, no, 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 let's see what happens. Um, or if you just say, well, look, if, if, I, if I rush across the room dramatically, he'll think I'm angry at him. <laughs> and so what do you do? You recoil. Is that what love looks like? That you're not going to stop this person from hurting themselves? Well, that's Jesus. Jesus is the person here who decides to talk about judgment a lot because he believes so firmly in it. 
It was, it was the reality of judgment that actually motivated his preaching and motivated his love for people. He didn't have some ghoulish obsession with judgment. He loved people. He loved people, and that's why he talked about it. And I want you to have the attitude of Jesus towards judgment. I want you to have the same attitude Jesus had, because what did Jesus do? Jesus wept at the reality of the judgment of God. Jeremiah wept at the judgment of God. Isaiah wept over the judgment of God. The apostle Paul wept over the judgment of God. He was so upset to think about people receiving God's judgment. He said that he would rather be judged by God and go to hell if it would save God's people. So so in the Christian tradition, what you do not have is this ghoulish gleefulness toward the judgment of God. Instead, you have this seriousness about it. And at the same time, in response to that belief in the reality of God's judgment, a greater motivator to go out and speak to people. Do we love people like Jesus did so that we are willing to share God's means of escape with them? Do we believe in the judgment of God? And if we do believe in the judgment of God, do we believe in the grace of God? That very grace I'm talking about that we're going to see next week. Because you can't just go to people with the grace if you don't go to people with this. Today's passage, we have to internalize and believe this so that next week's passage, the grace of God, actually makes sense. Specifically, in today's passage, one thing Jesus does, he gives us a window into God's judgment because here's what he does. He talks about the standards of judgment by which God judges people. You know, there is so much for us to learn from this passage. Uh, so let's, let's move through it at a, a measured pace. Let's look at under three points. First, woe for cities. Second, woe for accountability. And third, woe for judgment. When, when, the, when the Bible uses the word woe, it's like pronouncing a curse upon yourself or upon someone else. And so Jesus has a verbal reaction to the judgment that these cities are about to face. And that's why he uses this word, woe. Jesus has a big heart for people. And today's passage helps us see part of the reason why. His reason, of course, is that he had a firm understanding of the reality of the judgment of God. He understood what awaited people who received to refuse his grace. So let's go to the first point. The first point, what we see immediately in the text, is woe for cities. Look what it says in verse 20. Jesus says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. You know, one thing that you, you immediately notice in verse 20 is he's talking, he's talking to these cities. There's this fascinating issue of corporate responsibility here. Jesus speaks to the whole city almost as if it was a person acting as one. He, he talks about the whole city as if it has rejected him. And when we talk about corporate responsibility, I think we become very uncomfortable. We are modern individualists. We have been shaped by the Enlightenment more than we realize. Um, existential thinkers have impressed upon us that each man is an individual. Each man is unique. Each person uh, is their own person. And, and, you know, this is in our blood. We're, we're capitalists. We know that the masses of people are really just individuals pursuing their own self-interest. And so this talk about corporate responsibility, this talk about there being a such thing as a whole society or a, a whole city, it just makes us uncomfortable. Um, I don't like it necessarily down in my bones, right? Because I would rather be responsible for myself and have no connection to anyone else. Much more comfortable to think of, of all of the problems of the world around me as having nothing to do with me and simply uh, me being on my own. I, you know, I can't do much to change my neighbor, but sometimes I convince myself that I can change myself, right? And I want to be held accountable for what I do, not what my neighbor does. This might sound like a very modern way of thinking, but you know what? I'm just like Cain, right? Am I my brother's keeper? That's in my blood, to think like that. Am I my brother's keeper? That's our impulse, and it pushes against the way that Jesus talks here. Because it turns out that God cares about this city. 
In fact, there's a history of cities in Scripture. Cities have a long precedence going all the way back again to Cain. Because what happens with Cain? Cain murders his brother. God puts a mark upon Cain so that no one would kill him. Uh, whatever it is that Cain believes about himself and about his future, he flees to, to the east. He flees to the land of Nod to make his own security. And what does he do? He builds a city and he names it after his son, Enoch. It is a city founded on faithlessness, upon human autonomy. It's, it's a city founded upon a denial of the promises of God. I'm going to make my own way in the world. I'm going to be my own man. I'm going to make a city that reflects me. In Genesis 11, what happens? The people are attempting to create a great city, Babel, devoted to their own greatness. And what does God do? He confuses and frustrates them. The spirit of an unrighteous city cries out, I don't need God. I don't need his glory. In fact, we'll make our own glory. A city and a people group founded upon the core idea of this is is the very definition of an unrighteous people. There are more of these in in Scripture. Sodom and Gomorrah, another example of a city that forgets God, exalts the self, forgets the Creator, and says individual autonomy is what matters. Self-fulfillment is what matters. We're, We're a people who will live for the moment. We'll live for ourselves. Who cares about what people before us have said? Who cares what God has said? What do we say now? And of course, God determines to destroy it. What does God do? God himself does this. He forms his own city. He forms his own nation. He, he plants his, his capital in the city of Jerusalem. And one of the things you see here, at least, is that cities are not inherently sinful. Why do we know that? Because God made one of his own. Um, we know they aren't inherently sinful because God decides not to just focus on the individual. He cares about the collective group of people. He cares about the cities. Cities are an expression of the hearts of the people. They become an expression of the people and how they believe life is meant to be lived. And of course, the Bible ends with a city, right? It ends with God creating a new city. Cities aren't inherently sinful because God wouldn't make one at the end of all things, right? In Revelation, John John tells us, I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This is a city that he intends to make his permanent dwelling, the place where his light shines out of, where people live together, where they represent and represent not only the Lord, but what he made us to be as a people. So when, when God is choosing to represent the place where he will live forever, what does he use to represent it? He chooses the image of, of the city to convey it. Um, this mass of redeemed individuals living together under God as their king and as their ruler and as their light. In scripture, God deals with individuals, but he also deals with people groups. He deals with cities. He deals with nations. In Psalm 915, David says, The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. In scriptures, it's not just individuals who act, but it's nations who act and sink in the pit. Whole nations, not merely individuals. Now, we're right to believe that individuals matter. But we should not be so quick to focus on the individual that we forget about the city or we forget about the nation. We should share the gospel with all people, but we have a responsibility to think bigger and wider in the place where we find ourselves. Um, I grew up in a rural location. Um, If if you're rural, you should pray for your locality. But if we're in the city, we should pray for our own city. You know, this is the instruction that God gives that God gives to his people as they're in Babylon, right? Pray for the good of the city in which God has placed you. I hope you haven't written off the city in which you live. Um, You know, even when I was preparing to come here, um, I hadn't written off Evergreen, but I I do think that I had darker assumptions about what the place was like where I was coming to. Um, And God is always reproving me and showing me I can't make assumptions. And I'm, I'm constantly surprised, though, at the number of believers that are actually here. You might think to yourselves, this is a place where there are hardly any Christians. And maybe statistically, percentage-wise, compared to the rest of the the nation, that might be true. But there are Christians all over the place here. Um, As a percentage of the population, again, we're quite small. But we're we're also not invisible either. 
when I was down in Mississippi, and I was considering taking the call to come here, um, people in Mississippi sort of imagine, that you can just imagine what Mississippians imagine about what it's like to live in the Portland area. And uh, when, when I was thinking about coming up here, here's what I thought. I thought that everywhere you go, there's this Antifa guard somewhere, and they check your, they check your Christian card, and they beat you up if they see it, you know? <laughs> That's sort of what I thought. I, I actually went down to get donuts downtown one time, and there definitely was a dude standing at the door, and he checked me out before he let me go in and get, get donuts, but... I think I had a rock band t-shirt on, and he left me alone. Um, I would have been in big trouble if I'd been wearing, wearing this, you know. <laughs> um, but you just imagine a caricature, right? You just imagine that it must be like that everywhere. And, and people did, they did tell me, you know what you're, where you're going to. You're going somewhere crazy. And, and yet there are believers here. There are Christians all over the place here. Um, it's a mistake to write off this city. Um, if you live in this city, I hope you haven't written it off. Don't lose hope for the place in which you live because God is at work in hearts. He's at work in people's hearts. Um, do not lose hope for the place in which God has put you because in a world where God is king, we have a reason for hope. Don't write off the countryside, but certainly, but don't write off the city. Now, let me be clear. The reason for that is not because we should see greatness in cities. Um, I think there is something special about places. Uh, or th- or I, I, we shouldn't think that, that uh, there's something special about cities or that there is something unique about cities that makes them especially a hopeful place. The reason why we should be hopeful is because God is great. So the, the reason for optimism is rooted in God and his person, not in the concrete and the steel and the metal and all the things that are around us that, that we think make up a city, the, the reason not to write the city off is because our God is not powerless. It's not a hope rooted in blind optimism, rooted in humanistic assumptions. And, and I hope you will instead, you will root your hope in God. Root your hope in God. Um, think about this. Jesus loved the city. He loved the city, specifically the city of of Jerusalem, but he loved the city of of Chorazin and Bethsaida as well. Um, You see his love for different cities. In Luke 19, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Here's what the text says. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. You know, he understood the idea of Jerusalem. He'd been to Jerusalem before. It wasn't his first time going to Jerusalem by any means. He'd been there when he was a young boy. We know that he'd been there other times as well. And yet something about it, he, he, who knows what it looks like. He rounds a corner. He goes over a ridge. He sets his eyes on that city and it reduces him to tears. This is a man who, who loved this city. And not because he loved walls and buildings and stones, but because there were so many people in the city. And because of the hardness of the hearts that he had run into over and over again. You know, you see the love of God at the end of the book of, of Jonah. You see the love that God has for cities. You know, God is speaking to Jonah, and Jonah doesn't love the city. Jonah wants it all to burn. And God is trying to bring him back from the edge, right? And he's talking to him. And what does he do? He speaks of all of the souls and the cattle. That's just the funniest. That's the ending. So many cattle. And he cares about the cattle. He says, think of all the people and the cattle in this place. He can't even dislodge Jonah, right? He's got such a hard heart. You know, it's possible to speak of cities as so important that it seems like rural people don't matter. That's a huge mistake. But we shouldn't miss that God does care about cities and he cares about the souls in the city. They matter to him. Will you pray for for the place in which you live? And don't pray for the the concrete and the stone and the the metal and and the wood and the buildings. Will you pray for the people? Will you make them a special subject of your prayer and your intercession? Will you pray that God would do great things here by spreading his gospel from person to person? Stop writing it off if you are. You know, this really is a city, as, as God tells Jonah about Nineveh, in which most of the people do not know their left hand from their right hand, in which they're deeply confused about themselves and about God and about reality and about morality. 
a place in which everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Doesn't that make you, doesn't that fill you with sorrow? Uh, It should not fill us with with resentment. It should not fill us with, with bitterness. It should enlarge our hearts. It should not shrink them. Like Jesus' heart is, is big toward this city, these cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida. The reason he's pronouncing woe is because he is so troubled. And you don't get troubled about something you don't care about. He cares. Do you have a heart for the place? Do you have a heart for the people? Do you, do you, do you care what happens to them? Or, or are you like Jonah, just waiting for the fire to come down? Because if you do think the fire is coming down, I hope you have the heart of Jesus for whom that thought filled him with distress. And it filled him with tears. Jesus is our model. The model here is love the city where you find yourself. Right? If If he's looking at Chorazin and Bethsaida, he's got love for them. If he's looking at Jerusalem, he's got love for them. We should love the place where we are. We should love the people. We should pray for them. Now, second today, Jesus pronounces a woe for accountability. Look how he speaks in verse 21. Um, Especially look how he undergirds what he says. Look at the beliefs underneath of what he says. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For, here's your argument. We see that word for. We know there's an argument here. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago and sackcloth and ashes. So Jesus speaks to these cities and he's lamenting their unbelief, but look at the grounds of what he says here. Why? Why does he speak so forcefully against them? It has to do with what they know. It has to do with accountability. In scripture, and certainly in this text, you find this teaching that all people are responsible for what they know and they are accountable for what they suppress. They're accountable for what they know, and they're accountable for what they suppress. You saw our New Testament reading this morning on page 4. The, the reading from Romans spoke specifically about the fact that men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. They suppress the truth And God holds them accountable for what they know. So this is a passage in Romans where he's talking about what they know and what he's going to hold them up to. The mirror he's going to hold up to these people. Um, The cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida had more knowledge than the other cities. And so Jesus says they faced a greater judgment than other cities that had less knowledge. Cities like Sodom. Cities like Gomorrah. Keep in mind, even cities like Sodom and Gomorrah had knowledge of God, according to Romans 1. They were accountable too. They were accountable too. He doesn't say Sodom and Gomorrah, no judgment for them. Instead, he says there's a degree difference in judgment. Now, this does not mean that there are some places out there where people get a one-way ticket to heaven when they die simply because no one bothered to try to evangelize them. Nobody ever bothered to try to take them the gospel, so there's no gospel to reject. Um, Just because they haven't read the Ten Commandments in a book, Paul says this, just because they haven't heard the gospel or read God's law does not mean that they do not face a judgment. Because what is Paul's whole argument in Romans chapter 1? His argument is that all men are, without exception, guilty Because we all know the Creator, right? Uh, All the things that we should know about God, we are aware of. We know that God has made us, Paul says. We know that He is our Creator. We know what He demands of us. We know what goodness looks like. We get guilty consciences when we do bad. Even the people of the city who have never cracked a Bible in their entire lives get mad when someone breaks into their car and they know that they've been violated somehow. They know it. They may not have the cognizant moral grounding where they could say where it came from, why it is they know this person shouldn't have done that, but they know that person shouldn't have done that to them. Um, 
Even those who haven't read the Ten Commandments have the law of God written on their hearts. They feel guilty when they do wrong. They know it's wrong to steal without having to read it on a tablet. They know they shouldn't murder even though they hate their fellow man in their heart. They are lawbreakers because the law is written on them. They violate their conscience all the time. By the way, this is not them. This is us. This is all of us. All people have knowledge of God which they suppress and which God judges us for suppressing. Even the atheist, the person who says there is no God, in their heart they know God and they push that truth down in their hearts according to Paul. Yes, even pagans, Sodom and Gomorrah, knew who God was And they pushed that truth as far as they could away from themselves so that there would be more room for them in their world than the creator who made and designed them and created them to know him and have communion with him. God does not judge us for what we do not know, but he does judge us for what we knew and resisted. So this has implications. This has implications that reach to all of us. They even reach to you and me, you know, sitting here in this church today. And here's the implication. If you know God, if you've heard his truth proclaimed, if you've been told about the Lord and you've heard his word, and then you reject that word, you have something in common with Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. You have heard the word, you've benefited from the word, and yet ultimately you don't prize the Lord Jesus whom that word points to. If you're within the hearing of the word today, but you won't trust in the Savior who's being declared, Jesus may be speaking of you here. It will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I say it may because just because you do not trust in him now does not mean that you cannot respond to the, to the message that's being proclaimed. I would not write you off because you are experiencing doubt or questions or because you're in tumult in your heart right now. You're trying to decide what's going on. You're trying to understand what you should do. I do not say to you he is saying these words to you, but he could be if you never respond and you don't, and you don't respond to the truth that you know. This is a message for us, people who live in the midst of consistent gospel proclamation and scriptural teaching, we do need to be warned about this. Um, if we've been exposed to what God has said, he holds us accountable for what we know. Um, one writer talking about the implications of what Jesus here says this about those living within the bounds of Christ's church. Christian communities are in special trouble on Judgment Day. Not because Jesus has not really been in the communities, but because he has. Every member of a church has Jesus, for, for, for Jesus is present in his word, fellowship, and sacraments. But Jesus does not have every member of his church. He has only those who, under the impact of his miraculous grace, are actually changing. Uh, Jonathan Edwards gets even more direct. He says, sinners under the means of grace are ordinarily more hardened in sin than the heathen. What a, what a bold thing to say. Sinners under means of grace are ordinarily more hardened in sin than the heathen. Right? If, if you're going to have the Bible read and preached and spoken and taught with tears, with love, with energy, with conviction, week after week, and you still do not trust in the Savior, think of how hard your heart has to be. That's what, Edwards is, that's what Edwards is saying. Better to be an irreligious person who knows he's a sinner than a religious person who doesn't see the badness of his own heart and thinks that he's great. Right? There is great danger in being interested in the message and not following the message to the Savior that the message proclaims. Will you hear the warning of Jesus today? If you know the truth, you should know the danger of rejecting that truth. Right? That, that warning, by the way, does not come from a place of any ill motivation at all. It comes from a place of love. Uh, a love that sees the danger and gives the warning. What kind of danger? Well, that takes us to the third point. Because third this morning, Jesus pronounces a woe for judgment. Listen to, look at verse 22 again. But I tell you, 
It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. I want us to especially note here that Jesus speaks as if there are degrees of judgment. Uh, Jesus acknowledges there may be one judgment that is more bearable than another judgment. Look at verses 23 and 24 again. He says, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. In some sense, Jesus is saying that the greater our knowledge, the greater the rejection of God, and the greater the rejection, the greater the judgment. There is a such thing as, as increased judgment. There is a, uh, apparently a greater judgment. We see this in several places in Scripture, not just in this passage, in Romans 2.5. Uh, Paul mentions that because of your hard and impenitent heart, he, he uses this phrase, he says, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Right? This, this idea of storing up wrath. It's a terrifying notion because the more wrath one stores up, the more wrath one experiences. Hebrews 10.29 asks this rhetorical question. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Right? So the, the author of Hebrews envisions a punishment that will be worse for some than others. James does tell us something that I think has confused some Christians. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of, of, of it all. Um, that doesn't mean that all sin receives the same punishment. That does not mean that Hitler gets the same judgment as the ignorant pagan. Um, James is teaching that a lawbreaker is a lawbreaker. He is not saying that all lawbreakers are equally bad or will receive equal punishment. Um, Albert Martin shows the, the different uh, statements in Scripture that indicate what contributes to the difference in judgment that you can see from the Scripture. And he points to three things. Um, he says, the first thing is this that you see in Scripture. He says, the extent to which a person has abandoned himself to sin. The extent to which a person has abandoned himself to sin is one of the factors. Listen to what he quotes. He quotes this from Romans chapter 2. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So he's saying this, the extent to which a person abandons himself to sin becomes a factor in the judgment. How much have you been given up? The second factor, he says, is the extent to which a person, by example and influence, has led others to sin. This is one of the things you see Augustine lamenting so much in his confessions is the, the things that he led other people to do, the, the ways that he led other people astray, the ways in which he lied to people and encouraged them to sin. And you see in the confessions, page after page, he's pouring out his heart to God, how sorrowful he is that he ever did this. Well, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 18. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. The extent to which we've led others to sin becomes a factor in the judgment, Jesus is saying here. And then the third factor that you see in scripture, is the extent to which light and privilege were abused. Um, listen to Jesus in Luke chapter 12. That servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So the, the point, of course, touches on our exact passage today. The, the fact that Chorazin and Bethsaida had Jesus himself, the fact that miracles were done in them, means that they had light and privileges that others never received, and they were judged accordingly. 
Now, how does this work out in practice? Are there some parts of hell that are worse than, than others? Am I, am I talking about hell? I, I'm not sure how far I can go as far as getting that descriptive. I certainly don't want to go beyond what Jesus says here. Uh, I think perhaps it's enough for us to simply take the warning of Jesus to heart. The greater the light we receive, the greater the judgment, Jesus says. The greater the light we receive, the greater the judgment. You know, we are meant, on the one hand, to love sinners so much that we will share the good news of Christ with them when we have the opportunity. And we do that from a place of love, not a place of judgment. We do that because we care about them, just like we've seen Jesus toward these cities. Um, Jesus doesn't hate these cities. He loves these cities. And we're meant to hear the warning for ourselves so that we don't have the preaching and the warnings and the gospel message and just trample it underfoot like it doesn't matter or like Christ isn't precious. I will be the very first to admit that reflecting on the judgment of God is not, at least at first glance, the most inspirational thought. Um, You know, I mentioned already, I really wanted to go to the next verses today. I really wanted to spend some time there. After all, God's judgment is terrible. If it can reduce Jesus to tears, then it's awful. No one can stand under the judgment of a pure and holy God. It's an awful thing to think about. And yet, as much as we may not like the judgment of God, the judgment of God is also how we're saved. Because it's, and that makes the judgment of God even more a cause for rejoicing. But Because what happened? Jesus faced the judgment of God. The very same judgment that caused him to weep over these cities. The judgment placed upon the Lord Jesus, the judgment that he experienced, is our own means of escape. So we actually need to love the judgment of God because of that. You see, here is the truth. We, we started today singing, holy, holy, holy. If there's no judgment, that song is a lie. If there's no judgment then that song is just a really good song. And it's not true. If there's no such thing as judgment, then then we don't worship a holy God. We worship a God who sure is perturbed when we're sad or sure is upset when we get upset. But we don't worship a God who's holy and pure We can't, right? Because he doesn't do anything about sin. He just helplessly stands by. You know, people in this world, they imagine God as a God who just winks at sin. They imagine a God who his job is just to say, I don't care when he sees people sinning. Except when they're the victim of sin. Then they want God to step in. Then they want him to take it seriously. But see, our God is holy. And that means that he can't just nod and make our sin go away without violating his own goodness and his own purity and sending the message that says, I'm not worth it. I'm just a being who made everything. I'm just a being who's morally indifferent to what takes place in this world. Something must be done to truly deal with our sin and take it seriously and deal with its consequences. If forgiveness is ever to be possible or meaningful, Next week's passage isn't beautiful if there is no judgment of God. The very invitation of Jesus for us to come to him and lay our burdens upon him and to give him our sins so he can give us his righteousness. How is that a beautiful message if God doesn't care about our sin and we're in no danger? It's just sentimentality. If it isn't, if sin is not punished without exception, then it really would be true that God has abandoned humanity and does not care what happens in this world. If there is no judgment, then those who are hurt really will, who, those who hurt us will really go free. And they won't answer for what they've done. And if there's no judgment, then all the evils of mankind are simply left unanswered and unaccounted for helplessly. Those who look around and they see the the horrors mankind is capable of, they see the needless wars, they see the viciousness of the human heart, they see the hatred that human beings have for each other, and it grieves them. If there's no judgment, then they are right. God really doesn't care. 
And yet you go to the cross and you see emphatically this message, he cares. He cares enough to punish sin. Because on the cross, we see the judgment of God in full display, in its full fury, in its horror, in its terror. Yes, I'm using all of those words very intentionally, but also in its purity. Because, because the cross, the cross is proof that God does see and punish sin. You know, you look around and you think, does he care? Does he care at all? Does any of this matter to him at all? The cross is the place that you point so that you can see that he takes it seriously. Because as, as horrified as we are by God's judgment, we are also meant to rejoice in it. Because in the judgment of Jesus, all of those who trust in him will have their own sins forgiven. Again, as I mentioned next week, we're going to see the warmth of Jesus' invitation. We're going to see the warmth of that temptation. And, and this is the moment where I want to go there. I'm sure Christians are uncomfortable with judgment. We don't want to come off as, as threatening people. We don't want to look like we're saying to people, hey, look, come to church. Come to church or else, right? We don't like the idea of uh, metaphorically bringing people to church at gunpoint. doesn't seem like a very good way to do evangelism. And, and I, I am sure that we are uncomfortable with that. But here's the thing. As a consequence of that impulse, we can make the mistake of refusing to warn people. We, we get really sensitive about it, right? We don't want to embarrass ourselves. We don't want to be embarrassed of the message that we're supposed to be so eager to talk about. But what is the message? When you get right down to it, it's this. If you've got no judgment, you've got no rescue from sin. That's why we can't be embarrassed of God's judgment. The judgment of God is something that all people know is coming for them. It's the comet that's on its way, and everybody is afraid that it's coming. And what does the world do? They, they tell everybody, there's no judgment coming. Don't be afraid. You know, that if you just repeat a lie long enough and often enough, people do begin to believe it. And that's what the world is doing. The world is like, there's no judgment coming. There's no judgment coming. Those Christians are crazy. They, they, they have nothing to say that, that is actually comports with reality. Let's just move on and let's just live like, like they never said that stuff. And meanwhile, they feel so guilty. And they feel like something's still coming. And they, they don't believe that it's the judgment, but they hope something's coming because they've been sinned against. And they hope something's not coming because they know they've sinned too. Everyone's got this conflict in their hearts, this conflict going on. And there is a need to believe in judgment. And there is an impulse to believe in judgment. And there is a belief in the human heart that something is going to set the thing right that has happened to me. And there's a fear that God is going to set right the things that I've done wrong. And apart from Jesus, that is a fearful prospect. But here is why the judgment is beautiful. Judgment is beautiful because Jesus was judged in his people's place. Jesus faced God's judgment. In our, in our place, Christ was judged. He was treated like a murderer. He was treated like a thief. He was treated like someone who hurt people. He was treated like someone whose heart was filled with, with hate. He was treated like someone who did the worst things you can possibly imagine. Imagine what someone like that deserves the miseries they deserve, the, the, the sorrows that they spread, know this, Jesus was treated like that. Judgment is not just something that God directs toward us. It was directed to his own son. Mankind receives nothing that God wasn't willing to do to his very own son, Jesus Christ. The very thing that we are afraid will make us sound like monsters if we preach it or show people from scripture, it happened to Jesus. You see, the good news is a man on a tree getting the judgment that others deserved. That some Christians are embarrassed to admit. That we may be embarrassed to admit. God's judgment teaches us that God takes sin seriously. How do we know how seriously he takes sin? We know it by looking at the cross. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. 
It was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. By his stripes, we were healed. This is what God has told us. It isn't a human invention. It is the truth revealed to us by God. Jesus Christ bore the weight of divine wrath. Since he was stricken and afflicted by God's hand and experienced all the signs of wrath, a wrathful and avenging God, the very judgment we're afraid to talk about, it happened to Jesus. If you don't have a judgment, you strip the death of Jesus of its meaning. He just becomes a good example, a nice man, and a victim. This is why we must believe in the judgment of God, because it's the doorway of salvation. We're afraid of saying this. We don't want to be manipulative. We don't want to use fear to reach out to people. And so what's the impulse? The impulse is we don't talk about the judgment here. This is a, this is a very inviting and open congregation where we don't talk about that thing. And yet if we keep silent out of a fear of being misunderstood, that's not love. Because Jesus isn't manipulating these cities when he weeps over them. He's showing his heart. And I think maybe we should begin there. I think maybe we should begin there by caring about the city in which we find ourselves by weeping a little more over it than it makes us angry. Because if we start with loving these people, if we begin by having a heart for them, if we don't have hearts like Jonah, if we don't secretly despise them and gleefully look forward to the day that the fire is coming down, perhaps we won't sound so monstrous to them when we tell them the wrath of God is real. Please flee from the coming judgment by going to Jesus. If we sounded more sorrowful and mournful in sharing the judgment of God, and then perhaps they would hear something different, the thing that we really intend. This warning about judgment isn't just for others, though. It's for you, too. I don't care if you've heard the gospel a thousand times or if today's the first time that you're hearing the gospel. The call is the same for all of us. Believe in Jesus. To all who did receive his name, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the application, by the way. If you're waiting for the application, where's the application? Where's the application? There it is. Believe on the name of Jesus. Hear the warnings. Believe the warnings. Act on the warnings. That's what Jesus wanted for these places. It's what he wants for us too. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you would give us your spirit, that we would not simply hear information, but that we would be changed. Where repentance is called for, would you grant it? Where a soft heart is needed, would you grant it? Where a fresh boldness is needed, would you fortify us? Whatever our need, grant it to us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.